0: Well, good evening everybody. Good to see you. I know some folks are coming off spring break, some folks are entering into spring break, and some folks are adults that have no spring break. We're glad you're here too. Would you turn to the book of Luke that's in the New Testament. It's uh, there toward the back half of your Bible. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16. And in our series during the season of Lent, which is a season that precedes Easter, the season of giving, praying, and fasting, a season for the church to reorient, to get our heads right, to get our hearts right for the feast and celebration of Easter. And what we're up to is following along with some texts on Saturday that you presumably might have read in the book called The Unvarnished Jesus by Brian Zond, In this previous week. So we're going to be looking at one of those texts, one of those passages that you may have read, and we'll be there in just a minute. But first, a quick word about the unvarnished Jesus. Part of what we're after is admitting that there may actually be some varnishes. There may actually be some layers of meaning that we have learned that we just might need to unlearn Some that we've picked up like detritus and debris as we go through our life. And it's important at times to pick them up, to examine them, and perhaps cast them aside. Not all layers need to be removed. There are some baseline foundational layers like Jesus is Lord that we need to cling to because there's life there. But the person of Jesus is too surprising and compelling to stop seeking and finding. In our message about the mustard seed, I want to encourage you to leave room for faith to grow. Leave room for the image of God to expand and transform you. This evening, we're also going to answer our weekly questions. What is the varnish that needs removing from our image of Jesus and his way? And in what way is Jesus inviting us to see him more clearly this week? Sometimes to mix metaphors, I think of layers and varnishes like camera filters. And the thing about camera filters on your phone, if you start to click through them through your image, you'll notice that some of them soften an image. Some of them soften an image and make them uh, smooth, and it smooths out the rush, uh, the rush, the rough and difficult spaces. And then other filters, like dramatic, they sharpen and bring to focus some of the more contrasting and dark or light images. Nowhere, I think, is a filter used on the passage that we're about to look more The passage that we're about to look at is a story that Jesus told, and it's from within this story that sometimes people will lay a camera filter that softens it and takes out its shocking and surprising meaning. Other times they take a filter and they put it on top of the story Jesus told, and it sharpens it to a point that I think distorts some of what we find within it. I want to try and approach this story with the least amount of varnish, the least amount of filter as I can. I'll do it imperfectly, but I want to invite you to explore it with me by trying to look at it in its own terms. And we're going to talk about hell because that's one of the filters that's been overlaid upon this story. And I don't talk about hell that much. So it's time to remove maybe that varnish together. But the irony is is that hell is not the point of this story. And I want to leave you, and I will have done my job, if we don't miss the point either. We don't want to miss the point of what Jesus is trying to communicate. And I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. The point of Jesus' story has much more to do with this life than the afterlife. So would you just go with me? At the end of it, you may not agree with me, but in our church, we like to say, can we disagree without disengaging? Because the varnish, the foundation that Jesus is Lord is way bigger than what divides us. Our theories on things that are simply unknowable. We can have good guesses, we can have good clues, but I hope that you'll go with me And if you really are to look at the Bible as as unvarnished a way as you can, you might see that it leaves you with more questions than answers. And if you see that there's more questions than answers, then hopefully that would lead you to a place of greater humility. And if you're led to a place of greater humility, then you'll be led to stick closer to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And that we may not know it all, but if we know him, we can be confident that our life's trajectory is headed toward love and life, and life eternal. That's what we're up to. So with all that being said, let's look at Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. This is a story that Jesus told about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. Verse 19. The rich man also died and was buried. No mention if Lazarus was buried, but the rich man surely would have had a lovely funeral with all kinds of folks coming to pay their respects. But then it gets weird. Verse 23. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides... Between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to there cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. the word of God for the people of God. We say, thanks be to God. Really? Yes, thanks be to God. It's a wild one, isn't it? Years ago, I was never a youth pastor. I was a young adult pastor, and I got to go and uh, help with the youth a lot. And so sometimes they'd ask me to come and uh, preach or teach on a Wednesday night in my previous church. And it would always be like with very little warning. So a lot of times I would just kind of make it more of a discussion thing and just kind of lob some grenades and then let them blow up. And then I get to exit back to the young adults and then just let the youth pastor come and clean up a mess. So one of the grenades that I launched one night as I sat on a stool in our youth room is I said, all right, can you tell me what's the point of Christianity? Before I go on, you don't have to say it out loud, but what would your answer be? Hmm. Well, I asked a bunch of teenagers. And eventually the consensus was to go to heaven when you die. This is the point. I said, that's a fair point. That's a very, very, very important goal. So, let's put some data behind it. Open up your Bible. I'll give you just the New Testament. Because that's when we're really seeing Jesus Christ. And we're talking about Christianity. So, find me all the verses that talk about going to heaven when you die. How much time do y'all think you need? They're like, ah, two minutes. Like, cool. Cool. Are you sure? Two minutes go by. Do you need more time? Yes. Okay, five minutes go by. Do you need more time? Yes. Oh, wait. What they found a lot of is phrases like the kingdom of heaven. What they found a lot was about death and life. What they didn't find a lot of was explicit New Testament references to going to heaven when you die. And if you did this study yourself, you will find scant few verses. There are some references, if you look in Philippians, if you look in the Thessalonian letters, that do speak or lead to, and only once is a word paradise mentioned, and that's by Jesus to a thief on the cross. He says, today you'll be with me where? In paradise. I'll give you that. Paul seems to say that to be absent, the body is to be present with the Lord. But even still, it's not explicitly dying and going to heaven. It's nuances and things that we deduce and pick up. And if we're connected to God who is life, surely when we die, something of us perpetuates into existence. So I just lobbed that grenade and said, if that's the point, out of all these books and all these passages and all these things, why don't we see it More. The Christian focus after death truly is more about resurrection than heaven. That's not to say that going to heaven isn't on the table. That's the end game. That the kingdom comes in fullness and that earth is filled with heaven and heaven and earth become one. That's where this whole thing is headed. That's the terminus. That's the end goal. Please don't hear me say, uh, don't worry about heaven. Do worry about heaven! We want to be there. Heaven is God's space. Heaven is where God is. But I submit to you that if you were to really look deeply just at the data, the New Testament focus follows the Old Testament focus that has so much to do with you and your life with God right now. How are you loving God and loving neighbor right now? That is the focus. From a purely biblical standpoint, this is the focus. To the degree to which there is almost little reference of heaven in the Old Testament as we would conceive of it today popularly. I told you this is going to get weird. I'm just offering you a look at the Bible that is not discounting it. It's just saying This is part of what we're up to. But it's an outgrowth of the point of living connected to God right now in a way that sends us on a trajectory that will last even beyond death. I asked the youth group, what's the point of Christianity? I'm going to ask us now, what's the point then of this parable? It's not a picture explicitly of the afterlife, although it gives us a sketch The point that Jesus makes is this. Don't miss the point of life. Don't miss the point of life. He gives a sketch of the afterlife, but it is precisely for the people listening there, in particular, Pharisees. If you look in a Bible in front of you, earlier in Luke chapter 16, all the red letters that provide the context to which Jesus is telling the story in verse 13 he says so you see guys you can't serve both god and money and then verse 14 says if you have it in front of you what you see the pharisees who loved money heard this and sneered at jesus hey what's the point of life to be respected to have money to enjoy good things. God blessed us anyway. So I'm going to wear the nicest clothes. I'm going to eat in the nicest dining halls with the nicest people. I'm going to enjoy respect and favor. And as long as I'm looking out for me and things are going well, surely God's blessing is upon me. And therefore, I can expect to have another feast with Abraham on the other side of death. Don't miss the point of life. Jesus says to the people who have searched the scriptures more than anyone else in his day. They loved money. And maybe you love fill in the blank. It's what drives your thoughts. It was, drives your intent to the ignoring of everything else. Jesus says, okay, let me tell you a story. The parable that Jesus tells that we just read was a well-known folktale that was recorded at least seven other times by other rabbis. That may be a varnish that just rocks our world right there. But think about any preacher that would love to tell you a story, but put our own twist and our own point on it to illustrate something. He has the same characters, the same beats, and one of them is what begins, Hey, there was once a rich man. So all of a sudden, his audience is listening real close, and they're like, ah, oh, great, this guy. you got to understand, the average person was making a dollar a day. Their average diet was soup, bread, and maybe a little sip of wine, maybe a little fruit. So here's the story of a rich man. And he says he had the finest purple linen. I guarantee you, 95% of the people hearing this story ain't got nothing purple in their closets. Show of hands as to how many Gucci suits that you have in your closet right now in Garland... Dang, Will Stone has two? What's his allowance, man? Well, I'm about to get you on the next one because in his story, this rich man not even had the finest and most expensive outerwear The fine linen is like the million thread count literal Egyptian cotton. That was his underwear. So the rich man, let me tell you a story. He had the finest Gucci suits and Armani undies. Show of hands, sitting in these pews right now, be loud and proud. Who's rocking Armani undies? You want to show us? No? He's telling a story, and instantly the audience is doing what you're doing. They're going, this guy, right? Uh, I got a Target shirt that's wrinkled. <laughs> Not only that, the NIV that I read said he lived in luxury. That doesn't get at what the text really says. He feasted sumptuously. Understand that this man put on his Sunday best Gucci's in his comfortable Armani's and then he's going to have Thanksgiving dinner every day. Some rich folk would feast. Jesus is painting a picture of a cartoon character, monopoly billionaire. This guy cares about number one and no one else. He's having lunch in Armani and Gucci, And he's having a Thanksgiving feast. Meanwhile, this guy is his literal neighbor, plopped down outside of his gate. It's a parable. It's a story. We don't need to pick it apart too terribly. But the audience would understand, I probably know why he's out front of this man's gate. He probably got a turkey leg or two he can throw his way. But to complete the picture, we have the caricature of Monopoly billionaire man. And then we have Lazarus. Here's a Bible trivia question for you to put into your pocket for, like, ladies' trivia night. Ready? Who is the only named character in a story that Jesus tells? I've given you a massive hint. Lazarus. Lazarus is the only named character. Not a vineyard worker or a brother or a younger brother or a father. It's Lazarus. Jesus is doing something with this well-worn folktale to get our attention. He was laid there. He was destitute. He was physically ill, covered in stores. He was weak, not strong enough to knock away the stray dogs that licked his sores. Some commentators would say that he's uh, unclean now. He's probably got leprosy. He's got... Animals licking him. Even if he wanted to go to the temple, who's gonna take him? He couldn't get there. Meanwhile, homeboy's in there enjoying Thanksgiving for lunch. But Jesus names him. Now, in the stories that were told of this rich man and poor man, what was very common is the stinger of an ending where there's a great reversal. This was common in Jewish tales. They wanted you to be Removed from the varnish that to be rich means God loves you, and to be poor means God hates you. So they write stories like Job, who had it all going on, and he was rich, and then bad things happened to a good person. Then they tell stories like this to say, Homeboy's living it up every day, and then this guy's poor. Which one does God hate? And they say, Oh, definitely the guy whose dogs are going in between his toes. And they say, uh-uh. they both die on the same day. One gets carried by angels to the prime position at the feast of the righteous. When Jesus will go to his last supper, he has a beloved disciple reclining on his chest. That's the place of honor. That's the place of intimacy. That's the place you want to be. And Father Abraham, who has many sons, has Lazarus against his chest. That's a great reversal. And so all of a sudden, Jesus is starting to get our attention because we see, oh, he's telling one of those great reversal parables. In a lot of the other versions of the folktale, a lot of times, Abraham does offer his request. All right, one of you ghosts can go and warn who you want to warn. And then you got a Christmas story, Jacob and Marley Scrooge situation happening. Jesus does not have A ghost or a person coming back to warn them. That's because the point of Jesus' parable is don't miss the point. The point is, you know everything you need to know to live your life in such a way where you wind up like Lazarus and not like the rich man who cares nothing of anybody else. If that's the trajectory, expect more of that to come. The point is, don't miss the point. The point is, remove the varnish that you think you haven't figured out who God loves. You might be surprised that you have shut yourself off from God and his love. The surprising ending is, nope, you already had everything you need. You missed the point by living only for yourself. So the question is, in what way is Jesus inviting us to see him more clearly this week? It's this, don't miss the point. A life well lived is a life well loved. Don't ignore the Lazaruses. Instead, leverage it all on love. When I preach funerals, the funerals of people I know that loved well and loved Jesus, this is my line. This person lived life well because they loved well. By God's grace, this is something that will be said of all of us at our funerals. This, if you were to redo the thought experiment of what is the most important thing. And I'll give you two minutes in the New Testament. How many times would you circle the word love? John had one word. What is God? God is, if we're just doing biblical data... Now we start to come into focus this kind of story told to people who had read and studied the scriptures more than anybody else, but they loved money and they didn't love their neighbor. Don't miss the point. A life well lived is a life well loved. Don't ignore the Lazaruses, instead, leverage it all on love. We have no idea how Lazarus lived. Remember, this is a story, this is a sketch. The further you drill down, you might make a mess of it and spill batter everywhere, spill oil, however your metaphor is. But we just don't know how Lazarus lived, but we know enough to know how the rich man didn't live. He ignored the Lazarus at his literal gate. He cared only about himself. We have even more hints in there. He knew Lazarus' name. There's something about knowing something that's not as good and as fruitful as actually doing something about it. It's one thing to know that people are struggling and hurting and poor. It's another to actually move to compassionate action. The world can't see our thoughts, but they sure can see our hands and feet. The passage that Miguel read earlier, this is how God showed his love among us. He had good thoughts about the world. No, this is how God showed his love among us, that he gave his only son as an atoning sacrifice. A life well lived is a life well loved, and love is sacrificial action. We don't know how Lazarus lived, but we knew how the rich man lived, and even in death, he's still bossing Lazarus around. Hey, Lazarus, yeah, I know his name. Listen, can you send him down here on an errand? I need him to door dash a drop of water. And if Abraham was a real something, something, he would have said, like you door dashed him a few turkey legs. You see, the bridge beyond your gate is very bridgeable. But the bridge now is too great and it's too late. Even in death, he is unwilling to see Lazarus as anything other than someone beneath him and below him. And even when he wants him to go and send somebody, he just cares about his brothers. Again, this is a parable, and I want to be careful not to drill down too deep. You think his brothers are married and has kids and families? You think there's other people in his synagogue, in his home, in his neighborhood? Yeah, just get my brothers, man. My good old boys right there. We don't know. Much beyond the fact that Jesus is painting a picture of a person that cared only about himself. Don't miss the point. So what is the varnish that needs removing from our image of Jesus in his way? There is nothing more important than love. Galatians 5, 6 says, The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. After Paul gives his resume as a know-it-all Pharisee, The top of the top, the cream of the crop, the only thing that counts is that what you know translates your life in such a way that it transmutes the love of God to your neighbor. Which is why when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest thing? What is the most important thing? What does it all mean? What does all the 613 commands of Moses mean? He says, love your God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Paul in Romans 13, after Romans 12, fleshing out what love looks like, he says, love sums up the law. Love does no harm to a neighbor. I picked three verses there. I had to whittle it down from so many, it's not even funny. Hey, youth group, what's the point? If you love in such a way that's connected to God, who is love, who has sent his son Jesus, the image of the invisible God, and have been filled with the Holy Spirit, you love like that, you're connected to that, you'll wind up in heaven. But don't miss the point on earth today. A lot of us have prayed a prayer when we were babies and we were kids. A lot of us had some water sprinkled in on us. But are we connected to the source of love? To live disconnected from love is to die disconnected from God. But as John says, to live in love is to live in God. Both now and in the age to come. Both now and when our bodies are in the ground. Find all the verses in the Old Testament that talk about loving their neighbor. Caring for the poor. I had to whittle down so many. But when Jesus gives his surprise ending, different from all the rabbinic tales of the folktale, he gave this word. Hey, you've got Moses and the prophets. If you were following that and connected to God who gave them, you'd find yourself on the right end of things. I just picked one, Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 to 8. Something presumably our rich man would have known. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather be open hearted and freely lead them, lend them whatever they need. There's a few more if you're interested in finding how important love is expressed itself in sacrificial action. The only thing that counts is a faith that leads you to love. How do you know you have faith? You love. Add it all up in the Old Testament, and the answer is love love of God and love of neighbor. You know God is holy, you're going to love Him, and it's going to lead you to love others. If you missed it before, not even the Son of God being raised from the dead and the apostles going out and bearing witness to this will change their hearts and lives. I love what Brian Zahn said in our reading. Did the older brother in the parable that Jesus told just before get converted because he saw the young one return? Did the father invite the older brother Into the banquet. Yes, but the older brother would rather remain outside of his own free will, angry at who the father decided to welcome in. There is something about a life in which love does not take root. To willfully reject God's love and to persistently refuse to love others is to remain outside the party that the Father has invited you and the rest of the world to. Don't miss the point. Well, the rich man missed the point. And now we're going to throw another grenade and talk a little bit about hell. And this is where some things might sound different to you, and I want you to consider them. I want you to consider them, and I want you to talk to me about it except I'm going to Broken Bow for spring break. I'll be back next Saturday, but maybe we can talk about it sometime when I'm not trying to hike and canoe, okay? Some things to consider. The Old Testament has this idea of Sheol, which is the shadowy realm of the dead, and it's pretty much where everybody went. There is this idea in the Jewish concept that it was all about our life today. And that the worst thing they could imagine was dying and being removed from the faithful nation of Israel. To blot out their names, to not be remembered, to be dead and gone and nobody remembers this person. This to them was the scariest thing. It had nothing in the Old Testament concept of hell as we would have come to understand it in popular understanding. Everybody went to the realm of the dead but they wanted so desperately to be on the right side while their feet were on this side of the ground. Sheol is the Old Testament realm of the dead that everybody visited. Between the Testaments and what's known as the Apocrypha, they started to pick up images and ideas of the Greek Hades. Y'all have seen the Disney movie Hercules with the guy with the flame on his head? The Greek word Hades started to become a popular concept that worked its way into some Jewish literature between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So when Jesus tells his story, he uses the word Hades. The word Hades is what people used when they translated the Old Testament into Greek. There was a thing called the Septuagint. So when they translated the Old Testament, they didn't use the word Sheol. They said, oh, these Greeks have a word for their underworld, and it's called Hades. So then they took that word Hades, and then they put it into the Greek translation of the Bible. So add that to a lot of people that are contemporaries and being informed by Greek modern understandings of Hades as punishment with the three-headed dog and a guy that was evil. And you start to get this weird gumbo that looks quite unlike anything in the Old Testament. So then Jesus comes and he says a word, hell. What he's saying in the Gospels is the word, Gehenna, which is actually a word for the Valley of Hinnom. Ironically, it's a park today. But then it was a garbage dump just outside of town. Historically, they believed there was child sacrifices there, some shady business going on there. It became a dump. It was smoldering like the big tire fire in the Simpsons. Those who have ears to hear, hear. And Jesus warned them that if they didn't change their ways, their whole life and city was going to look just like their garbage dump. And so in A.D. 66... The Jews decide they don't want peace. They want to kick out Rome. And so they try to fight. And by AD 70, their temple is destroyed, leaving only the Western Wall today. And people are dying and burning in the streets. And their city, Jerusalem, just as Jesus prophesied, looked like hell on earth. Now, this is where it gets real fun. 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God alone is immortal. And I grew up with a wonderful pastor and person that told me every Sunday that every single person is going to live forever. And Paul says that God alone is immortal. That's something to consider. Especially when you see repeatedly in the New Testament that the gift of God is eternal life. Because the wages of sin is what? Death. So there's something there about rejecting life is to choose death. There's something that goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 31 when God chose a people that says, okay, I've set before you life and death. Choose life. Choose life. Choose life today so it'll go well with you in the promised land. Hello? Choose life today so that it will go well for you in the promised land now and forever. But to reject life is to choose death. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. When we really look at the biblical data, and we can talk more about this, I can email you things, we can talk through it. I believe that this separation becomes eternal in consequence, not eternal in conscious torment. For the traditional view of hell to hold biblical water, we have to understand that the God, who is love, even in his wrath, has to willfully keep mortal beings alive for eternity so that he might punish them eternally in conscious torment. Yet, the biblical data shows that there's eternal destruction. That this punishment is eternal in its temporality That the judgment is final and eternal from now and forever. There's no going back. In the same way we see in Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 9 that there's eternal redemption. We're not in a process of being redeemed forever. The judgment has been issued. We've been found on the side of life by God's grace. And so we are now redeemed and that is into perpetuity. And then we say, well, what about the lake of fire? And what about being cast into the outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth? The things that are said to be eternal are worms and fire, not human beings. This is the Bible. This is not a theory that I've just concocted. This is is biblical, but it's not exactly popular. Brian Zahn says that hell is the love of God refused. And he picks up this idea from the early church fathers that said, whatever the rich man feels or whatever the older brother feels or whatever real actual people feels, it is the sensation of going against the grain of God and his love. And for them, it feels like torture and torment. And when Jesus and the New Testament and the Old Testament speaks of torment and punishment, They speak of the wicked. When Jesus issues warnings about the judgment and the death to come, he's never saying those people over there. He's always issuing a warning to us to stay on the trajectory of love and life. He doesn't go and say, yeah, those Romans. He's always issuing a warning to us. Don't miss the point. Don't refuse the love of God. Don't refuse the person of Jesus who shows us how to live and love. Don't refuse the one who is alive forever, the resurrection and the life. Because when you're in him, you will be raised and you will be alive. That's the gospel. C.S. Lewis says that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. I do believe that there is some temporal moment in which people that have rejected and persisted in rejecting God and making hell on earth for neighbors experience some kind of willful, stubborn refusal of God and it's experienced as pain and torment. Because if they're anything like the rich man, they persist in their rejection. They still can't love a Lazarus or bring themselves to bow the knee. But I don't believe that it's eternal conscious torment. In Revelation, with the second death, the things that get thrown into the lake of fire are the devil and his angels, and they are tormented. Could it be that a varnish has been overlaid, just like it was for the Jews, from the prevailing culture? And now we've got this strange gumbo from far side cartoons and Halloween costumes and medieval Lurid poetry and fantasy like Dante's Inferno, or for me, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. And I'm just asking you, and even if you want to go with me on this, let's talk about together removing this varnish. Because there's something radical about the fact that in the gospel preached in Acts, zero times they warned them that... That if they didn't turn, they'd burn. If our gospel can't be preached without scaring children into hell, we better get better at preaching the gospel. The gospel was preached by the apostles as turn your life around. This one has been raised. Don't miss the point. You had the law, you had the prophets, you knew where this story was headed, you missed the point. Don't miss it. Turn to Jesus and find life and resurrection and life eternal. Choose life and love now and wake to find life and love in death. Because our life is on a trajectory We were created in love, for love, and it is to love we shall return. The question is, how are you going to receive it? Is it going to be a balm to you who've laid at a gate in struggle to find yourself at rest in the feast of our Lord? Or will that love be received as wrath? Or might, as Paul say, we be saved through the flames of purification, finding that there's something in us that is lasting to the end. We were created to receive God's love, to live in this love, and to extend this love to the world around us. The choice to love is ours. I want to close, and I know we got started late, with giving Martin Luther King Jr. the final word to end talking about a portrait of the afterlife, though important, would miss the point of what Jesus wanted us to get. We have a choice to love and to open ourselves to love now, a love that will send us beyond death. So in Martin Luther King's final sermon given at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, which, get this, was where his first sermon was preached. He preached his last sermon the same pulpit he preached his first sermon. His last sermon was preached February 4th, 1968. You remember what happened two months later. He was assassinated on April 4th. The last three minutes of his last sermon were so powerfully prophetic, it's unreal. He was in a church, and he was giving a sermon called the Drum Major Instinct, and he was deriding this inborn, innate instinct where everybody's going to be first. If you ain't first, you're last. Everybody wants to be the drum major. Everybody wants to be out front. Everybody wants to have recognition and distinction. And he says that this drive leads to the most tragic expressions of man's inhumanity to man. White supremacy, war, injustice, and violence. So what he said was, channel that drive instead toward acts of service and love. He said, be first in love, be first in righteousness, be first in generosity, and above all, be first in service to others, because a life well lived is what? A life well loved. The last three minutes of his sermon, he has this. He imagines his own funeral and says, if any of you are around, when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. (laughs) And every now and then I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That's not important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the war question. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. And I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major... Say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. And that's all I want to say. May what's true of him be true of us in our own lives, in our own spaces, and in the own beams that you have given us to bear. May we walk this way with you. Jesus, and may the yoke be easy and the burden light because we walk the way together. And when we close our eyes in death, may we open them to find our shepherd is still there with us. May we be a people who do not miss the point that life is not just for living, it is for loving. And that our life may be set on a trajectory marked by the cross of Jesus in whom we find forgiveness and a new lease on life. And may our life be marked by the empty tomb for we are now presently purchased and born into the kingdom of God that was and is and is to come in fullness. Lord, whatever it is that is leading us to miss whatever it is you have for us, will we not miss it now? May we seek you and find you for who you are and whose we are. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.